We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 25 verses. So if you could just remain where you are. And then we're going to go right into the word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at the birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is God's word. Father, as we gather before your word, bless it. Anoint it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight today. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Echoes of an old story. Echoes of an old story. Will we believe it when our faith becomes a reality is a question that I had for myself this week that I want us to look at. Our faith being interrupted as Zacharias was in the midst of everything is is challenged to believe the unbelievable when things like this story happen in our lives. As God prepares the world for its true king, We're going to unpack what Zechariah had to deal with and how it actually impacts and applies to our lives. And as most people who have to tolerate me during the week here, and I know that they humor me by doing so, um, it's been been a struggle for me to put this series together probably for the first time in, in my career in preaching. I'm not going to lie, this has been very difficult. But 
I discovered this week amidst all the noise and all the frustration and just really trying to figure out what it is the Lord wants to say to us when we're looking at a light and a dark place and all of these things. A couple of these questions came to my mind as I looked at this particular story. And it's driven here by Luke's description of what's going on with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the the first question that I asked myself that I think that we all need to answer and unpack today is, what would happen if my faith became my reality? What would happen if my faith became my reality? And number two, how would I respond if my prayers were so clearly answered? Those are two questions that I want us to unpack because both things happen here in this particular story in a time of great uncertainty. When this began to unfold in history, 400 years of nothing had come from the Lord, literally, not a word. 400 years of silence. It had been that long since the chronicler wrote his last words that Andy read for us this morning. And Malachi, the great prophet, had penned the last words from God to his people. Those were the scriptures that we had now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord's on the move again. And the chronicler wanted us to know so that he made proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, he's speaking to the Jews in exile. Those people we've learned over the last couple of weeks who were sent to Babylon that Isaiah was trying to encourage. Now it's time for them to go home. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now it's time to return. Those are the last words in the Hebrew Bible that are recorded for us. We have Malachi the prophet in ours the way it is set up. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those two verses end what we know to be the Old Testament. Then 400 years of silence. But those two verses are full of hope. They are full of faith. And they are full of the promises of God. Not only that he has brought his people back to their home, but the promise that he gave to Abraham thousands of years before that he would bless all the world as a result of the faith journey that they were taking. That all will come to pass as well. And the door is starting to open up. Even though the people at the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary really felt as though they were still in exile in their own country, the Lord was going to begin to move again. Because you see, when faith becomes a reality and the prayers of his people are answered, big things begin to happen in the midst of dark times. You can't avoid it. And that's what's going on. And with what I want to call echoes of an old story, once again, God is going to move his salvation plan forward. Guess how? Through seemingly insignificant and yet obedient people who don't think that they're doing a whole lot of anything. Bonhoeffer sees this as well in in, in the, the Advent that I read every year from Bonhoeffer. He sees this as well. And he reflects on these two people in this particular passage. He sees it in the deep wonder, not only of God's overall story, but in the Christmas story itself and how it unfolds. God, it seems, is in the business of using the least, the last, and the lost to accomplish his great purposes. If we think we're all that, sit yourself down and rethink it. 
there's a real good chance that he uses people that really don't seem very qualified for a lot of things in order to advance what it is he wants to do. And Bonhoeffer says in Wonder of Wonders, he says this, that God loves the lowly. He loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. See, God is near the lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, the broken. Seems that's where God thrives. You see, we have in these past couple of weeks journeyed with Isaiah both into the past as a reminder of what God had done for the people of Israel. And for Isaiah, at least, we were launched into the future for what it was he was seeing in these events that are now going to unfold. And he was trying to help his people and himself remember God's faithfulness in all of these things to deliver his people out of darkness. No matter how bad it looked, even when they were unfaithful, he loved them to the point where he wanted to make sure they were being delivered out of darkness. From Egypt and Moses, the song that was sung this morning. Think on that for a minute. The words to that particular song. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. It's one of the lines that they sang. What's going on there? That's a reminder of the first exodus out of Egypt. Moses is standing there with a million cranky people. The Egyptian army on one side, a big puddle on the other, and he doesn't know what to do. The Lord says, stand still. Stand still. Splits the water, they walk through it. God moves on behalf of his people through the man Moses. Gideon and the Midianites. Last week as well, we we find this reminder that Babylon too is going to come under God's judgment. It's going to come to pass, and God's people are going to return to the land that he promised to their forefathers. And that's what the Chronicler reminded them, and that's what we see happen. And we are in the middle of all of this stuff going on right now. But we get to see in the last words of the Old Testament this beautiful thing promised to them. And now this week, as we look at Luke in the New Testament, breaking open onto another couple is the very same thing. Unsung heroes of the faith, just two people doing what they're supposed to do in what seems to be the mundane routine of life. God breaks in again just simply doing what God has called them to. There's nothing at all really significant about Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you do any kind of studies of Israel and the the temple priests of that day, there was as many as 20,000 throughout the nation. Zechariah was not any one particular person who was special. Just in the right place at the right time because it was God's plan. But they find themselves, along with their entire nation, oppressed once again and subject to another tyrant by the name of Herod. It's always the story of God's people, no matter how you look at it, no matter what time it is. He's king of Judea and he's king of Palestine at this point, but he's really nothing more than a puppet of Rome. The only reason why he can rule is because they allow him to rule. But in the midst of that, he is probably as evil a man as this world has ever seen in every possible way. He came to full power when he decided to assassinate his wife's uncle to completely secure the throne for himself. And then he reigned in the most cruel and violent way for some 30, 40 years in Israel. And in describing his rule and ultimately his death, Alfred Edersheim, in the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, says this. And I think that this is just something to sit back and chew on when we whine a little bit about how we don't like who's leading our country. So ended a reign almost unparalleled for reckless cruelty and bloodshed. 
Edersheim says, in which the murder of the innocents in Bethlehem formed but so trifling an episode among the many deeds of blood as to have seemed not deserving of record on the pages of Jewish history. In other words, the assassination of a a town full of little boys in the grand scheme of Herod's reign was not that big of a deal so as to even warrant being recorded. That's how evil this man was. Keep that as a framework. Merimee, the wife that he loved, because he had many, up to ten I think it was, the wife that he loved, he killed in a fit of paranoid rage. And five days before he died, he had heard of a conspiracy theory that his son was putting together, and five days before his own death, he had his last son killed in order to secure his reign. It's into this darkness, and it's into this silence, that God was moving once again. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he and his wife, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Two people, blameless, and quite beyond the years of childbearing. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But they were really beyond the years of perceived usefulness. Let's look at this for a minute. Advanced in years, what that really means when Luke records that in that time is he's telling us that they were beyond 60 years of age. That's what advanced in years meant. Even then as today, for whatever silly reason, when people seem to hit that particular age, it's seen as the downhill side of effectiveness and usefulness in this world. The goal is to put people out to pasture when we hit that age. And sometimes they feel that way. Why do we think that? Because you see, on one hand, we have an aging group of folks that ask if there's anything at all that they have to offer anymore. Can I be useful in this community of believers and where I am? Do I have the energy to do the things that I'm supposed to? Can I still be used in the plan and purposes of God? But let me tell you what, remember Bonhoeffer. He loves to work with the lowly, the last, the least, the weak, all of that. That's where he thrives. What he looks for is obedience. How do I know that? Well, I don't know. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. Have fun with that one. Moses was 80 when he finally got his head on straight and the Lord sent him back to Egypt. 80. I'm 51. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. 80. Joshua, the same thing. My math tells me he was somewhere in his 80s when he took over and conquered the promised land. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth, the two characters we have today, are beyond 60 and perceived as beyond their useful years. But you see, age has no bearing, it seems to me, in the economy of God. We all need to hear this. So for those of you folks who are above 60, you're going, yeah, that's it, bring it. Well, wait a minute. We need everybody. Why do I know that? Because within the community, there is a deep sense of value given to those who have gone before. That is true. If we don't understand that, we better rethink how it is we operate. However, we need to remember also that God uses who he wants, when he wants. And it seems to me in the economy of God and in the scriptures that the old and the young, and as Isaiah says in 11.6, when he quotes, a little child shall lead them, all of the in-betweens as well. 
So from what I call the little booger pickers and, you know, nose flickers and all that stuff, all the way up to those who have got a great deal of wisdom and everything in between, God uses who he wants, when he wants, how he wants. A healthy community of believers understands that and sees the value of every single human being that is placed within that community. If we can't get that, just go home and watch football. We've got to get that. So for young people who look at the older folks and go, you're moving too slow, get out of the way, no. And for you older folks to you younger who think that the younger people are moving way too quick and we don't want anything to change, no. No. Let's figure out how we can talk together, work together, walk together. Because that's what a healthy community of believers is. Church full of young people is full of knowledge and short on wisdom. Church full of old people is full of wisdom and short on energy. Put the two together and the church can be what the church is supposed to be. But that's an aside. We'll come back here because that's not even in here. So, anyway. No one looks down upon these two faithful people. I, I say that in love. The church, that's the biggest struggle it has right now. But I don't have time for that, but that is the biggest struggle the church has right now. Trying to figure out how one generation can talk to the other. Because we just drank the Kool-Aid. Where we can just be sarcastic and cynical and mean to each other and think that that's okay. And then we wonder why the church is ineffective in the world. But no one looks down upon these two people. And Luke just makes a simple observation that she was barren. It's going to be important for this story. But he does so more to set the stage for what he's trying to unpack next for us. And that looks quite a bit like an old story. Perhaps Abraham and Sarah, two people beyond their useful years, God is all of a sudden going to use. You see, because Zechariah and his job as a priest here at the temple has been called to serve there. And as it would go, luck would have it, the lot would fall upon him. This once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, this priest gets to do what? Something's going to happen to him. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Once-in-a-lifetime chance, sometimes never. He gets the opportunity. It's just an interesting observation here for a second in all of this. The people of Israel right now at this particular time that we're reading have a despotic king, a dangerous evil man, propped up by the Roman Empire, who, by the way, if you've done any study there, aren't exactly winning friends and influencing people on how kind they are in running the world. This is the environment they're in. Yet we need to understand and remember that God's people never... Let their culture around them affect them, their calling to be God's people, and their obedience to him in what it is he says to do. Think that through. In spite of opposition, what felt like a continued exile in their own land because they weren't really ruling themselves, they were always obedient to worship God in the way that he called them to, no matter what the consequences were. We can't get to church on Sunday if it's snowing out. I think sometimes we're a little too comfortable. They don't have any protests. They don't have riots. I know we got this group of the zealots who want to take over the world. I get that. But the people who are being obedient to the Lord, they're not out there protesting. They're not out there rioting because they don't like the government at all. What they simply did was they tried to live the life that God had called them to in spite of their surroundings and within the culture they were called to be in. 
can we do that? Because that's something we have to take to heart and we have to learn from. And I leave that with something for you to chew on and process in whatever area you are in and struggling with. Ask the Lord to help us. Verse 10 is absolutely critical in this particular passage, I think. The whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Didn't say three students at the school were praying around the flagpole. A whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And I think that this is as important a verse in this particular passage as any of the verses that we're looking at. The multitude of the people were praying. Why? Because they were genuinely expecting God to respond to their prayer. They believed he was going to answer. And that the offering that Zechariah was bringing was going to be accepted. So they were standing there and they were praying because they believed God was going to move on their behalf. And they were going to wait to see what was happening. In the middle of your struggles, I wonder. My own struggles. I want you to remember. Remember what I said last week when I told you to choose your gate. Choose your gate. And you need to remember that God in the manger is bigger than any king standing outside your gate. Every day and twice on Sunday. We need to remember that. But are you praying in that kind of way? Really looking to God to stretch you and to grow your faith? Are you pursuing it into reality when prayers and where prayers are actually answered? Are you pressing in that heart? Or are you just in a rut? Where you get up every morning and you know you got to pray. So you go into that little spot where you're at and you just do it because you're supposed to. Because it becomes a routine chore. I've been there more often than I care to ever admit. But are you there? You won't ever get out of there until you're actually honest with yourself to say, I'm there. And we ask God to step in. Think about this. We ask him to answer our prayer. We believe that he's going to take care of that. But it's been so long in asking that he answers that you're really not thinking he's going to. So you just pray and you check the box and think, ah, okay. Ah, okay. Hmm. But you see, he always does answer, doesn't he? The Bible tells us he always answers. Sometimes he answers in silence in the midst of the chaos because he's trying to build our trust and he's trying to build our faith. He answers in a way that always will grow our faith in him. Always, we need to remember, like this story here, timing is absolutely critical. You see, Elizabeth was barren, right? That's what we're being told here. But not because she couldn't have kids. And this was what hit me this week. We always read this and go, ah, she's barren, she can't have kids. That's why. I don't think so. Not in the providence and the goodness of God. Not in his sovereignty. I don't see it that way. Rather, I think that her time simply had not yet come in the plan and purposes of God's sovereignty until now. You're not barren. It's just not time yet. It doesn't matter that you're beyond 60. There appeared to him an angel 
of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now there's a lot there, but just two things. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall name him John. Your wife is going to have a boy. Now what does that mean? That means a lot of things, not least of which is that it's painfully clear on what Luke records for us here is that even in their 60s, they were still praying and believing that God was going to answer what they were asking him for. They didn't stop. Your prayer has been heard. A child is going to come. And their faithfulness to continue in prayer was honored. God said, okay, now's the time. We can't miss that. How much should you pray for something? One more day. And then listen for an answer. And the second thing here is verses 16 and verses 17. When, when he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the just to make ready a For the Lord, a people prepared. That's good. Man, we're in our 60s and we're not just going to have some little schmoo. Your child isn't going to just be any old kid. No, your child's going to be the prophet who goes before the promised Messiah that you've all been waiting for. And what does Zechariah do? Nothing. You see, you and your wife are the ones who have been chosen to give birth to the one who's going to go before the king. You've waited all these years in faithfulness. You've waited all these years in prayer. Now in the midst of darkness and suffering, with everything looking like it's all lost, guess what? I'm going to speak light into this moment in time. And I'm going to take two people who seem to be beyond their usefulness and I'm going to make them so useful because of their faith. And again, what does Zechariah do? Not the happy dance. No. You're not jumping up and down in excitement. Not at all, is he? After all, his faith has just become a reality. His faith is now a reality. And not only did God answer the prayers, he sends an angel to tell him. I mean, we don't even get like, you know, second hand here. This is Gabriel from the throne room of God going, it's been heard. This is what's going on. And what happens? It's not the happy dance. He hears the promise. He sees the angel. He immediately looks back where? The same place we always do. Current reality. I don't know that that is going to work. Been there, done that over these 40 years. Hasn't been working yet. He looks back at his current reality, not at the truth and the promises that God gives him. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Smart fella right there. I'm an old man. She's only advanced in years. (laughs) Think on that, gentlemen. Think on that. My wife is not old. She's only advanced. I look at, you know, 
I do stupid things, so I got to find ways to save myself. But there's five words here which silence a man. How shall I know? Gee, I don't know. Angel, maybe? Just going to toss that out there? The guy who's talking to you? Now, I know none of us in this life, at least I don't think so, have had things like this so clearly answered in front of us in prayer and have fallen into that trust but verify mindset. I get that, you know, kind of asking God for ID. It's just such a miraculous thing that's happened. It's like, mm-hmm. can I see your license, please, Lord, because I'm not sure it's really you because, you know, I just never expected you to actually do what you said you would. That's what's going on here. Would he actually answer our prayer like this? Think of what you would immediately answer. Because the Bible tells us, yes, he would. It tells us, yes, he would. But I would submit to you that far too many of us sitting here today, in our hearts and in our heads, actually don't believe he will. Our faith in him isn't what it ought to be sometimes. Now, I'm not speaking of hyper-faith, name it and claim it, buy yourself a jet in a car and all that nonsense. I'm talking about this genuine, your will be done in my life, faith, Lord. What is it you want to do? Whatever that is, even if it's having a baby in my 60s and finding that this child is going to cause just a little bit more than a little bit of trouble in the land. Is that what you want? Okay, the question is, is do we have this faith? Do we have this faith? Are we genuinely surprised when he answers in such ways? Listen, you need to remember. Stop looking at your current situation and understand that since the dawn of time, God has answered prayers in this way. From Genesis to Revelation, this is how God answers prayer. Drives us to grow our faith. Helps us to understand that he hears us. Since Abraham was told all those years ago to take off with a little more instruction that I want you to go that way. The godly life and the journey that we have here in this world has been and will always continue to be one of faith. Our journey is one of faith. His faith was about to become reality. That's the deal with Zechariah. And it just blew his sandals off. You see, Zechariah doubted and it cost him cost him. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. You see, but there's grace here because the promise wasn't taken away. Realistically, what should have happened is he should have been zap fried right there in the Holy of Holies, but he wasn't. I mean, I know that's not a real sanctified way of putting it, but that's really what should have happened right there. Grace, though. The promise wasn't taken away. It's just made a little bit harder because now Zechariah can't talk. He's got to go home. He's got to explain this to his wife. I, I leave that with you. But this is what I saw. This is how it works and all that stuff. And his inability to communicate becomes a sign as he came out to the people that something miraculous had happened. The people were waiting. Again, remember the people that were praying expectantly that God was going to answer. They were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Okay, do we grab the rope and drag a dead guy out, or is he going to walk out and tell us something happened? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. 
And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. Oh, they're putting two and two together, smarter than he was. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of services ended, he went to his home. That's all he did. He didn't write a book. He didn't go on tour. He didn't create some ministry. Oh, I've been to heaven, and I'm going to tell you three ways why Jesus likes SpaghettiOs. He goes home. He gets down to the business of doing the day-to-day stuff that he's been called to do. Remember that. Because we have Elizabeth. Beautiful Elizabeth comes up next in this story. She expresses her faith. She expresses her trust. She expresses her joy in a way that only a woman who is waiting forever to be able to have a child can do. No man can understand what Elizabeth is going through. None of us could. Obviously. He gets an answer and he's like, how do I go? After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Obvious reasons. Saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among my people. That's hurtful. She thought she had no value with no children because that's what the culture deemed. A woman with no children is of no value. Now that she has a child, she feels that she has value. But you see, you were not barren. I can hear the Lord speaking to her in those five months of quiet time. You weren't barren. I'd always planned on giving you a child. It just wasn't your time yet. It just wasn't your time. You see, that's so important for every single one of us to grasp in life is God's timing. We think we know it all. Some of us can't even find our shoes, though, to get out of the house. But we think we know it all. You see, Israel has and had been waiting for thousands of years for God to send them another deliverer, a Moses. They're in exile. They're in Exodus. They're in exile again. And now with our first reading, we have Exodus where Cyrus releases them. If I could have the worship team come up and please just prepare for our last song. Now what we have here in this story is we have Roman rule. We have a tyrannical king. If we know anything about this story, he's going to do everything he can not to allow God to break in upon this world. But the Lord says, now's the time. Now's the time. The waiting is over. Your king is coming. Deliverance is at hand. A light has dawned in a dark place. And there's nothing that can stop it. And I'm going to move it forward. Guess how? Not by some divine aha moment. By a couple of 60 plus year old people who believed what God told them. And then they moved the plan forward. And that is still our hope. It's all we've got. Look around this room. You are as effective or ineffective for the kingdom of God as you allow yourself to be. If you are obedient to do what God calls you to do in your sphere of influence with the gifts that he's given you to the best of your ability, you will have an impact on this world. Oh, you may not be Billy Graham, it doesn't matter, but you better be the best engineer you can be, the best computer programmer you can be, the best janitor you can be, the best nurse you can be, you name it, you pick it. That brings glory to God. It's still our hope to be his light in a dark world because we wait for that second advent when Jesus, our king, returns the second time. And we see him coming on the clouds and all of his glory and all of the angels with him.
But until then, part of the Christmas message is in the waiting and sometimes in the silence and in the struggle of the things that the Lord's trying to do in us and grow us in. We have to remember that we have work to do for our King. Are you prepared for when God makes your faith your reality in your life? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to respond correctly when prayers are actually answered, even in a way that unsettles the daylights out of you? I leave that with you this week to be prayerful about. We could stand. Just want to say as we get ready to close in this last song that if We'd like to offer prayer again this morning at the end of the message as well. If you are in need of prayer while the worship team sings, uh, there will be people in place. I would encourage you to step out. I would encourage you to seek prayer. Join with a brother or sister in Christ um, as a family of believers so that we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day approach. But just join the worship team in singing this last song.